Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, August 13th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, it's been an interesting week for some of America's most high-profile governors, so we thought we'd focus on three of them this morning. Andrew Cuomo of New York finally succumbed to political pressure, including from the White House, and on Tuesday, he announced his resignation. After a 14-day transition period, New York's lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, will take over, becoming the first woman in history to hold the state's top office. And in California, Governor Gavin Newsom is no doubt regretting that dinner at the French Laundry back in November 2020. You may recall the state was in a partial lockdown at the time, even outdoor dining was verboten, and he sat down at one of California's most expensive restaurants for a birthday celebration in honor of a state lobbyist. It's really not the smartest move, and he now faces a September 14th recall, and his challengers may be gaining steam. And in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is pushing against local school districts that wish to impose mask mandates on students and teachers, and that has put him in the crosshairs of the Biden administration, but may also be bolstering his presidential ambitions, at least among some Republican primary voters. So joining me to talk about all this are Carl Cannon, Real Clear Politics Washington Bureau Chief, Susan Crabtree, RCP's National Correspondent, and Bill Whalen of the Hoover Institution. He is a regular contributor to RCP, as well as a former chief speechwriter to California Governor Pete Wilson. So, Carl, let's start with New York. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, pretty tough guy, but he couldn't tough this one out. So let's look forward. What's next for him? And uh, does this help clean up a potential problem for the Democrats, not only in New York, but nationally as well? Well, yeah, Cuomo did them a favor. He, he had to go away. I mean, what was going to happen is independent voters, conservatives, Republicans, uh, half the Democratic Party was going to say, well, the Democrats never meant it about uh, women. They, they don't really care. It's all it's all, it's all just politics. It's all posturing. Um, and he finally got the message. So, and, and you know what, Andy, you, so he's replaced by the first female governor in New York's history. That, that couldn't have been better for Democrats. As to what happens to Andrew Cuomo, I think most Democrats hope they never hear of him again. Susan, what do we know about Kathy Hochul? She's already said she's going to run for governor in the next election. Yeah. She is kind of refreshing. She's probably the opposite um, personality type uh, compared to Governor Cuomo. And it's interesting that you're going to have, after you know, sort of a succession of very uh, hard-driving governors, you're going to have a, a woman who is known for her sort of congeniality. Uh, she toured the state, um, it, whereas Cuomo liked to stay in New York, uh, and sorry, in Albany. He, and in his office, she constantly toured the state. And she has a really good, you know, kind of reputation with people on outreach. People say that she hasn't had a lot of governing experience, but she was a member of Congress. She was a one-term member of Congress. Um, and she managed to win from a Republican area, first per, uh, Democrat to win in 20 years from that district. So, you know, I think it's refreshing. She doesn't have executive experience, but she does have long experience in New York politics. She was an aide to Daniel Patrick Moynihan. She worked in right. local politics in Buffalo. Cuomo himself appointed her to a clerkship. I mean, it seems to me that she's she's been around the state and, and knows a lot of people. Now, I'm not an expert in New York politics, but it seems that she knows, you know, that you got you saw those comments coming from the legislature. Republicans and Democrats spoke highly of her. And she's from Buffalo. That's uh, what some of us remember as Jack Kemp 
country. But I'm wondering, Bill, will the Cuomo legacies, though, uh, you know, stick to her a bit? Well, she's certainly going to try. And she did the smart thing by by obviously making herself a candidate because she couldn't sit there as a lame duck interim governor and, um, and let the 2022 race go by her. But <clears throat> let's don't speak about Andrew Cuomo in the past tense in at least two regards. First of all, he's sitting on an $18 million campaign war chest. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think he's going to let that just sit there and idly collect interest. Uh, secondly, there's a very open question as to how the media will continue to pursue Governor Cuomo or not pursue Governor Cuomo. Uh, if you looked at Amazon a couple weeks ago, they were no less than three Trump books in the top five nonfiction category in Amazon. There's still an obsession with Trump. But now that Cuomo's out of office, will the media still continue to pursue him in terms of the uh, in terms of the you know crossing the sexual boundary lines, but also in terms of the uh, nursing home debt scandal, or they just let him go away? Uh, the other thing I'd point to, by the way, is it does open a new can of worms. You now are going to have a very wide open gubernatorial primary in New York in 2022, whereas a Cuomo was running, maybe it wouldn't have been that way. Uh, Hochul will run. Uh, Letitia James, the attorney general who wrote the report that slayed the governor, she uh, presumably is going to run. And then there's a congresswoman from New York City who is looking at this and maybe a Senate race in 2022. We don't know what card she's going to play. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because if you have a really brutal primary, it actually opens the door for Lee Zeldin, who's the Republican running. Um, I don't think he has a lot of a big chance, but he's already raised four million dollars and is operating on a thirty five million dollar campaign budget. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if how brutal the primary is. How can you have Letitia James not have a conflict of interest here when she was the one who wrote the report? Uh, I think I find that a little bit. Um, I know that Democrats would love to have a woman, a black woman governor. They missed their chance with Stacey Abrams. Uh, but it, that seems a little bit too uh too, too far for me um, to have the woman that wrote the report uh, win the governorship. I, I do think Kathy Hochul stands a, a better chance right now. But Carl, what about AOC? Because she, you know, she has been presumed to maybe be interested in running against Chuck Schumer, who I assume every day is now going to send her maps of good yoga studios in Albany that she might like. Um, but is she going to sit in the House with that uneasy relationship she has with Democratic leadership? Or is she going to spread her wings and try to do something statewide? Because it's, again, 2022 is a twofer. There's a Senate race and a gubernatorial race. I've always assumed she wants to run against Schumer. Um, she, you know, she was 29, I think, when she first ran and she won. And, you know, in this district, she got very few number of votes, challenged Joe Crowley, uh, you know, a few thousand votes. But statewide is different. She doesn't have any executive experience. Seems to me uh, it'd be easier for her to run for, for Senate instead of the governorship. Of course, you know, if a, a mutual friend of ours, Bill, uh, I wrote in the in the late 80s that I didn't think Governor. I didn't think Pete Wilson would run for the governorship. I thought he had a Senate seat. He was he was doing well in the Senate, but uh, there's something about being governor. It, it it draws people. But my guess is that, and I, I want to comment on one thing Susan said. Yeah, I think that the Attorney General may we may look back, and she may have thrown herself on her sword to get rid of Cuomo. You know, I I think people are going to think, wait a minute, the person who got rid of Cuomo now wants his job. Um, and gee, we have this pleasant lieutenant governor. Do we really want three governors in you know eighteen months? Hochul's in a pretty good spot, I would think. Let's get back to Cuomo for a second. He's sixty-three years old, so he's by Democratic standards, and at least in Washington, that means he's a baby. Um, he's fifteen <laughs> years younger than the president. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't think we've heard the last from him, but it's hard for me to imagine what the comeback uh, strategy is. The other thing is that, you know, he's facing possible cr- criminal charges as well, and he's still got this um, impeachment to go through. So um, just resigning wasn't, uh, that's not the end of his problems. Wait, wait, Andy, let's talk about that for one second, though. 
do you really think they'll follow through on impeachment? Because, you know, they did this with Trump, but a lot of people, I wrote about it, a lot of people thought this is really an abuse of the system. Impeachment is designed by the to get rid of the person, to get them out of office. He's out of office. I mean, do they have to do it because they impeached Trump when he was out of office? I don't think so. No, I, I, I think they want to close the door on him, Carl. He could still run for office having resigned, but if he's impeached, he can't run again. So that would be that would be the act, plain and simple. You try to close the door on that. But uh, it's, it's what's always fascinating about um, something that almost struck me. You become the anti-Trump or you get involved in a dust-up with Donald Trump, and sooner or later it comes back to cost you for some reason. There's just some some sort of negative energy that rubs off on you. And so <laughs> Cuomo and you know TV personalities and celebrities, people who get into dust-ups with Trump, bad things end up seem to end up with him. But uh, I don't know, 63 years old, he's, he's you know, governor for 12 years. Uh, if he did run in 2022, it would have to be such a remarkable change in events. She would have to be just an incredibly incompetent governor. You would have to have a wide open Democratic field, maybe Bill de Blasio running in it or AOC, a bunch of Democrats just all chewing each other up. And for some reason, Democratic voters in New York thinking, boy, I miss Governor Cuomo. And that's a lot to happen <laughs> in a relatively short you know, time period. <laughs> a little sidelight on this. I'm just interested. Um, and Carl, I'll throw this to you. But Susan, please weigh in as well. Chris Cuomo, how does he come out of all this? Um, I, I have a minority view, and I, I hope that Susan disagrees with me just to get me back on the right road. But I, it's his brother. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have the same view as as a lot of my friends in the media and the me- media critics. I've been critical of CNN, but I remember um, Tucker Carlson got in a thing. His brother Buckley did something stupid tweeted something. I don't even want to go into it. It was, it's a minor thing, but people asked, you know, Tucker to denounce his brother. And he said, it's, he's my brother. I'd rather die. And I thought, and I, I feel the same way about my brothers. And I just think Andy, somebody disagree with me, please save me from myself here. But I just think, you know, when blood's involved, it's a different story. Susan, what do you think? Well, who's going to really say anything other than uh, Republicans who already can't stand Chris Cuomo? You know, it, it, yeah, it's it's his constituency are people who are sympathetic to what Carl just described. Um, the critics are on the right, and they are the same critics who gave him a hard time when he, you know, was had COVID and he left and he was walking around and they saw him and there were pictures of that. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a polarizing figure. Uh, Chris Cuomo, but you know his constituency likes him, and I don't see CNN dropping him anytime soon. Well, Margaret Sullivan of the Washington Post is a liberal commentator, but she wrote a blistering column again denouncing CNN, and a couple of other liberal press critics have weighed in here. And so, I, um, what am I missing, Andy? I don't know. Bill's the voice of reason here. I'm going to okay, Bill. <laughs> yeah, it's also early in California. I'll point out, so my reason is kind of limited here. No, it's uh, no, I'm with Carl on this. You know, blood is thicker than water here, and he stood up for his brother. Uh, that's fine. If you want to be outraged, you can be outraged by by the Cuomo relationship, but just general media coverage of Democrats is the larger outrage. It's you know not just so much the one brother coming into his defense. It's just the media were so fawning over this guy for you know several months back in 2020. Why? For one simple reason, he was not Donald Trump. And they look past his personality, they look past his character, they look past the job he was doing in terms of nursing home debts. So so that, I think that's where the outrage ought to be directed. Well, I don't so think the-, the nursing home debts had, had come out yet when everybody was fawning over him when he got his Emmy. 
Um, and he was very entertaining. I mean, I watched every single one of those press conferences and he was hilarious. Um, just as much as Trump is a showman, um, Cuomo is a showman. So people love that. The media loves that. And that's why he was gaining ground back then. We even, I even suggested to Carl that I should do a profile on his presidential ambitions. And thankfully, Carl shot that down. <laughs> I, <laughs> that would I, not I, have aged well. <laughs> I gently talked her out of it. <laughs> Well, let's switch coasts here. Um, and I, I should note that Bill and Susan are joining us from their homes in California. Uh, Carl is a California native. And I want to give a shout out to my brother, just uh, as long as we're talking about brothers. My brother's Link. And he lives in San Francisco. He was here on the East Coast for a week. He gave me his perspective on what is going on out there. So I've got uh, my own views on it at this point. But Bill, the RCB average um, has yes on recall at 48%. No at 46%. So how much trouble is Gavin Newsom really in? Uh, he's in trouble. He's in a heap of trouble. Um, and the easiest way to tell us, two ways to tell us, one is uh, he's spending the next four days out here going on the offensive. He's going around the state and he is trying to rally Democrats. And we'll get to that in a moment because Democratic numbers in this uh, recall are flat. Um, but second, just what your eyes show you. Um, I was watching the Olympics last week. I'm one of the few people in this country apparently who bothered to watch the Olympics. And for me, the Olympics are an escape. It's getting away from the awfulness of the world, just watching sports. Sports and you know, this is like badminton or something like that. So maybe I was sitting there as a grumpy band wondering why is this an Olympic sport? But anyway, we go to commercial during the Olympics and up pops an ad featuring Elizabeth Warren telling you that the recall, the upcoming recall is another Trump-led assault on democracy. Uh, no, no break from this. Uh, that ad, which ran around the clock for the better part of a week and a half in California, shows you that Newsom is concerned. Um, the uh, LA Times Cal Berkeley uh, poll that came out uh, just recently showed that about 78% of Republicans are jazzed in terms of voting on September 14th, and only about 47% Democrats. And while Democrats do have a huge advantage in, in voter registration in the state, about 24 points now, it was only eight points back in the last recall in 2003. Uh, simple math tells you that Republicans are excited, Democrats are blasé, and independents are somewhere in between. The sitting governor has a big problem on his hands. So Susan, Bill brings up this enthusiasm gap. And, and is this really about turnout? Because because Bill's right. I was looking at these polls, and it's interesting uh, when you look at likely voters, the numbers are even worse for Newsom, given the fact that Democrats so far outnumber Republicans in the state. It's pretty amazing that this is even as close as it is. It's really amazing. And, and it was a sleeper of a race. I've never covered such a sleepy uh, uh, election in my life. Um, and here we are down to the last weeks, few weeks of this campaign. September 14th is when the deadline for to get your mail, mail-in ballot in, and we're having a real race here, but nobody knows what the candidates stand for on the Republican side. Um, it's kind of, Larry Elder didn't even show up for the debate last week. Caitlyn Jenner didn't even show up. She was in Australia. Just so people know, Larry Elder and uh, Caitlyn Jenner are the sort of number one and two uh, candidates at this point, and they didn't show up at the debate, but, but go on. Correct. Um, there was a debate uh, at the Nixon Center uh, last Wednesday that I covered. Governor Newsom has a problem with Latinos. Latinos are 39% of the population here, and they were the hardest hit by this pandemic and the lockdown policies and the job losses. And uh, I, I do feel like it's a personality issue with Gavin Newsom as well as the pandemic issues. The uh, I saw in the Associated Press they referred to him as a fop. I had to go look that up. I knew, thought I knew what the word meant, kind of like a dandy, but I want to make sure it was precise. He is not liked 
Um, and he n- seldom gives interviews to the local press in Sacramento. He only has a few people that he lets in. He has not cultivated the press or the voters, and it's coming back to haunt him. Listen, both of those points are right. While Bill was talking, I was reminded the last time there was a recall, uh, Gray Davis was the governor. He was he, he was a, personally a diffident. He could be a diffident person the way Gavin Newsom is. Um, he wasn't. It wasn't the lightning rod, I, I wouldn't say, but politics were different there. But he knew he had an enthusiasm problem and he knew people didn't really like him. And he told, he said the damnedest thing. He said to me, Carl, they don't need to do backflips of joy into the voting booth. They just have to walk in there and pull, put my, pull my name. And, and I remember thinking that sounded right, but it, it didn't work. He lost. And this enthusiasm gap that Bill's talking about and this, and this, trouble connecting with voters on a personal level the way Susan's talking about, if he loses, those are the reasons. It's not because the state's gone Republican. It's not because they. it's a real referendum on his job. And, and the other thing I would say, and Andy, as you you, sent, you you alerted me to this, Bill wrote a really smart piece. Uh, I guess it was for Hoover's website about, about how the Democrats let this system, you know, stay on because it's not it's not very good government, the, the, especially in an era where the voters are so sour. I mean, look back to 2016. If you could have just voted no on Hillary Clinton and no on Donald Trump, overwhelming majorities of Americans would have voted no. But an election, the way we understand them, is a choice uh, between usually two people, sometimes three. And this, uh, this funny system where you vote on the recall and then have to choose from a bunch of, of, of no names, 200 people. And, you know, that's not, that's a pretty bizarre experiment in democracy. Anyway, I build it. And it, and it gets further um, uh, bizarre when you consider that uh, some states actually, Carl, have recalls where the incumbent sitting governor can actually run with the field of candidates. So you could actually vote to recall a governor and return him or her to office at the same time. But uh, you you stumbled on something very important here, Carl. Uh, we always view elections as one-on-one or you know, you know two-on-two affairs. Um, but this is a recall election. It's a different creature in this regard. There are two questions. The first one being, do you choose to recall the governor, yes or no? Then look at the candidates on question B. So in this regard, you're absolutely right, Carl. This is a vote of confidence on Gavin Newsom, a yes or no vote on confidence. You have confidence in the governor. And here I think he has maybe made a strategic mistake. If you go back to 2003, Davis approached this two ways. First of all, he gave a speech in Los Angeles at right about this time in 2003, in which his people let it know that he wrote the speech personally, he and his wife, and he got up there and he spoke in absolutely outraged terms about how conservatives were trying to hijack California the way they tried to hijack congressional races. In other words, he was playing the right-wing conspiracy card that Newsom has actually uh, been going after that Elizabeth Warren had. But then secondly, um, he just talked about the the fact that um, there were just non-qualified people running as well on the other side of the ticket. And Californians look at Arnold Schwarzenegger and decided we can live with Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor. And he was done in that regard. So I think for Newsom, he has to consider two things. Number one, to what extent does he talk about his record and what he plans to do for California? And here it gets interesting because Gavin Newsom, born in 1967, is the embodiment of Bay Area metrosexual slick back hair entitlement. And I, I have... I have some friends in consulting business in California who think that maybe Newsom suffers from an odd malady and that he's a very handsome guy. And sometimes there's such a thing as being a little too good looking in politics. And the more the people see you on TV, uh, he also has a fabulously attractive wife and very attractive kids. It's maybe too much for voters. But what I'm curious about in this election, guys, is this. Uh, We have not had a politician in America 
born kind of in this age range, 1967. Uh, we're stuck with another president born in the 1940s. Uh, our leadership in Congress is uh, is uh, antiquated, to put it politely. But here you have somebody born in 1967 who's brought a lot of late 1960s sensibilities to his office, things that his predecessor, Jerry Brown, would not have dared done. So I wonder, guys, if maybe this is California in some regards kind of pushing back against a governor who may be done is a little too much. You saw signs of this in the last election here where California had this absolutely schizo set of results where 62% of the state voted for Joe Biden. But at the same time, voters said no to affirmative action and voters said no to an increase in property taxes for the sake of school. So maybe maybe California is looking at hitting the brakes with this recall. Susan, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think that it's interesting if you talk about his policies. He went in a state of the state uh, address earlier this summer. He said this is going to be the California comeback. Well, we have you know six weeks into the California reopening and the employment claims are going up. They're not going down. We have three weeks of unemployment increasing where the rest of the country, mostly it's going down. So I I don't think that works for him. And also, you know, you just have so much going on with school reopening right now. Um, And I just sat through a school reopening for my uh, kindergartner going in. And it is just all these decision trees on the COVID uh, COVID contacts. Uh, It's just overwhelming to uh, parents that they have to have to sit here and uh, I guess it's going on across the whole country, but you know, you have Newsom, one of his biggest donors is are the teachers unions. And there has been a lot of problems with pushback with his uh, education czar uh, reopening. She has not been, she, she, she actually has conflicts of interest. Her, her husband is a chief content developer for a virtual online production that it's, it's marketing itself to high schools. The homeless population is increasing. He hasn't done a great job with that. It's exceeding 180,000 in this across the state. Uh, it, home prices in California, $750,000 is the medium house in California. It's just, it, 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 there's so many problems that the state's facing now with the wire, wildfires as well. And his, his PG&E has become one of his biggest donors, as well as his a donor to his a wife's charity. She gets $300,000 a, a year from corporate interests. I don't, I just don't see that in other governors, governors across the country. Did your wife make money from your political donors? It's just, there's a lot of problems here that are coming out uh, recently. Yeah. Well, let's move to Florida. And uh, it's interesting. We were talking about the age of these various fellows. Ron DeSantis is 42. So he's even younger and Gavin Newsom. And he's emerged as the sort of poster governor for the anti-mask mandate, um, anti-lockdown position. Isn't lost on anybody that Cuomo and Newsom were hailed as presidential hopefuls based on their handling of COVID. And DeSantis was ridiculed at the time, but he's getting a lot of national attention. One would assume that the Republican base likes what they see. Carl, is his presidential stock on the rise or is this new outbreak going to end up hurting him? Well, that's the question. It was on the rise. Do you remember a couple of years ago when uh, I start? I started. It became clear that liberals were worried about Mike Pence becoming president someday because you noticed all of these hit pieces in these these profiles of Pence. They were the in the in the normal in the typical liberal outlets. I don't need to mention them. And you know, just attacking the guy viciously and for for stuff either that he didn't do or trivial things that didn't matter at all. It was was funny. It was 
uh, they were reading from some playbook. Well, then I noticed the same thing a few months ago about DeSantis. You start seeing these, you know, what a terrible job he's done, even as his popularity in Florida was rising. Um, and I thought, okay, now they're worried about DeSantis. But this is different. The, the variant that has taken over, the, the so-called Delta variant, the mutation of the coronavirus, that's now the dominant virus everywhere in the country and 80 to 90% of the new cases. Uh, Florida's been had, Florida's the hotspot. It's got the most cases. And DeSantis seemed to weigh the, the threat to the economy and the threat to health pretty well uh, until this point. And I, but I don't know that he's doing it now. And he, and the same thing in Texas, this uh, Greg Abbott, the governor that's sort of banning local mask mandates. And it seems to me they they may have gone too far. And it's not just the uh, liberals attacking them, but some of the never Trump conservatives. You know, uh, Matt Lewis had a column. Uh, Matt's pretty conservative. And he said, uh, he talked about DeSantis order ba- banning local mask requirements and threatening to hold the withhold salaries of superintendents and school board members who follow the CDC's uh, Delta guidance. He said, uh, this is a lot of things, but it's not conservative. To say that you want federal power, you don't want local power. Oh, you just want state power, and you happen to be the governor. It looks controlling and authoritative, and I think both these governors, Abbott and uh, DeSantis, are going to have to answer for it. Susan, well, he's sort of backing off with his threat to dock the superintendents and the and the officials, local officials' salary uh, if they don't allow if they go ahead with mask mandates in schools. Uh, so he's sort of changing his tune on that right now, but it was it was a, a bridge too far, and uh, I think in terms of uh, federalism, you want to have local control. Let if you let liberal areas of the states have their own policies when it comes to mass mandates. My problem is I don't think that we have enough research on the effects on children with mass mandates, and I think that's where uh, both science and the media has really failed um, to really produce. I've seen a Journal of American Medicine Association uh, study about that, but it wasn't really conclusive or uh, peer-reviewed uh, peer enough. So so as parents, we don't know what the policy should be. Um, and he basically was saying that parent, your children couldn't have the option, which, you know, I like. So there's certain areas of the state that could pr- have that as an option. Um, but overall, I think he's taking this sort of mandate that he became the face of the anti-lockdown. And so, you know, he could be taking that too far. It's risky um, if he if he doesn't pursue a more pragmatic approach as the cases are rising in his state. And you saw that with the president and uh, Jen Psaki kind of he made himself the face of the lockdown policies of, of anti-lockdown, and now they're they're punching that face. They're in, and he can be vulnerable if the cases rise and the deaths start rising as well. Yeah, and we should probably tread lightly on the whole presidential speculation thing because, first of all, we don't know what Donald Trump is going to do in 2024. Um, but let's assume if Trump doesn't run the DeSantis standard, they're waiting. I, I have this theory for you. It's the derangement syndrome that we've seen in American politics for 20 years. There was Clinton derangement syndrome followed by Bush derangement syndrome followed by Obama uh, derangement syndrome, then Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, I think we're in the early phase right now of DeSantis derangement syndrome in two regards. <laughs> number one, just 
you just look at headlines invariably coming out of Florida and just whatever DeSantis says, it has to be wrong. It has to be bad. It has to be mistaken. But secondly, it's the character of Florida itself. There was a piece in Vanity Fair that came out the other day and the reporter went down to Palm Beach, which has now become kind of the epicenter for the Trump post-presidency. And it was just filled with just kind of snark and ridicule and just this sort of, you know, snotty anthropological look at these, these you know, these deranged people who still support Donald Trump. But that's Ron DeSantis's Florida to them. So I think if DeSantis actually does go national in 2024, earlier 2023 and then 2024, I think you're going to see the media, the, the prominently left-leaning media, treat Florida the same way that Texas was treated under George Bush. Remember the remember the NAACP ad in 2000 where you uh, where you took the case of um, uh, the poor man who was dragged to death and that was used as a metaphor for George Bush's Texas as a man from a dark racist society. I think the media will do the same with DeSantis, just have him as the governor of this sort of backward, ignorant state, even though Florida, as we know, is a much more sophisticated state than that. Well, DeSantis first would have to win re-election in 2022. I don't know that that's assured anymore. Well, no, that's true. I, I think he drew a pretty good opponent in Charlie Crist. I, if, just, if I were a consultant, I'd like to run against Charlie Crist, the former, the former governor of Florida, who's how many times has he switched parties now? It's getting kind of, it's kind of dizzying in that regard. Um, Only three or four, Bill. Don't exaggerate. Yeah. But you know, but this then does tie back into you know what we started with in terms of 2022, and what kind of election is 2022? Is it going to be a wave against um, against Democrats? Uh, is it going to be something of a mixed results where Democrats lose some places, they hold on elsewhere? Um, and does someone like DeSantis does now does he end up being what George Bush was in 1998, where he's you know successfully reelected, then pivots right in the presidency, or does he limp out of his campaign, beat up, or does he lose? Um, you know, it's very funny sitting here in California. If you talked to Gavin Newsom's people a couple years ago, they would have you know. You know, they would have sworn to your secrecy, but they said the best thing that happened to us would be Donald Trump is reelected and the Democrats are in disarray. And our guy runs for a reelection in 2022 and he wins 60 percent of the vote and he is hailed as the next great thing in Democratic politics. And hello, President Newsom. So, you know, the point here is things can change very fast in politics. That, Bill, that's a good point. And we, we only have a few minutes left. This was from Jason Salami. Who, he's an epidemiologist at the University of South Florida. And this is just to how quickly not only politics change, but COVID can change. This is what he said. This is from the Miami Herald uh, just a couple of days ago. He says, I just assume that there will come a point, whether it's in the third or fourth week in August, that we will hit a peak, this is in Florida, because there are just so many people that will have either vaccine-acquired immunity or infection-acquired immunity. And those people are going to start building up some immunity to the Delta variant. At some point, the numbers just won't be able to keep going up. There can't be enough people in the population, and they will start coming down. I wonder if DeSantos is looking at those sorts of numbers and saying, you know what? Unlike Cuomo, I can tough this out. And in September, when people start going back to school and the numbers are coming down, those mask mandates may look like they were intrusive, and he may, he may have anticipated something. I'm just, Carl, that's my theory. I'm going to throw it to you. This is the last word. Well, Andy, I think, I think that's, that's interesting. And the other thing that's going on in Florida and, and nationally, these infection rates have gone way up, but the death rates have not gone way up. And, and the, uh, you know, as long we're in a weird we're in a weird place with that. It, you know, you don't hope, nobody hopes for deaths to go up, but I know the teachers union in Broward County put out a statement earlier today. Oh, four of our t- educators, three teachers and an aide have died of COVID. Uh, and, and this, you're supposed to get from that, that, um, that maybe we shouldn't open the schools, but none of the four were vaccinated. So what I got from it, and I assume what most Florida parents got from it is, wait a minute, the teachers union still haven't gotten vaccinated. Well, 
you know, if my kids have to wear masks, the teachers should get vaccines. So as it, you know, if the death rates spike the way they did a year ago, Andy, all bets are off. But if, if they don't, uh, and, and the, the Delta variant burns itself out the way it did in India, the way you're talking about now, maybe DeSantis, maybe DeSantis knows what he's doing after all. Well, I guess we shall see. I'm, we're going to have to wrap it up right there. But um, I do want to thank Carl Cannon, Susan Crabtree, Bill Whalen uh, for being with us today. We're here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As always, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics and read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. That could be Bill Whalen. could be Susan. could be Carl. You never know. Well, uh, we've already got a heat wave across the country, so trying to shed a little light and understanding when it comes to your political discourse is a good idea this time of year. If you haven't already, you should subscribe to Carl Cannon's Morning Note. It's a free newsletter. It comes in your email every morning. I can't start my day without it. You shouldn't either. You can sign up for it at realclearpolitics.com. And thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth. <laughs>